Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. Hello and welcome to this Aspen UK webinar and podcast on the future of journalism. I have to reveal my bias here. As a former BBC journalist, I will never lose my belief that free impartial journalism is an absolute necessity to the functioning of a healthy democracy. The news industry has always been under attack, but it feels like this is one of its most vulnerable times. And I'm looking forward to hearing from Matthew and his panel on where they think their profession will end up a year and a decade from now. I'm Penny Richards, the director of Aspen UK, and we are so glad you could all join us. Thank you. And thanks to those of you who've joined us live. We've also received a stream of questions from those who will listen to later dates, so thank you for that. Before I introduce you to Anna, Lorna, Mira, Matthew and Polly, a quick explanation. Aspen UK is not a think tank, it's the opposite of a club. We think it's important to bring people together who might fundamentally disagree with each other, but who wants to debate and confront their own ideas and their values. We're hugely committed to bringing communities of actively engaged and enlightened leaders together, inspiring them to work for the common good. And we normally carry out this mission through seminars, conferences and leadership programmes for now. Inevitably, the large part of our work is virtual. Now to Matthew. Matthew Price is a presenter and correspondent for NBC News, but who spent 26 years at the BBC as one of its senior foreign correspondents. He was based in Belgrade, Jerusalem, New York and Brussels, and covered some of the biggest stories of the last two decades. He went on to be the chief correspondent and a presenter for Radio 4's Today programme, and he helped launch and hosted the BBC's award-winning daily news podcast, Beyond Today, which honestly, I am still missing daily. I thought it was an exemplary podcast and it's, it's much mourned. Matthew, thank you so much for looking after this conversation today. I'm really grateful. Over to you. Thank you very much, Penny, um, for two things, both for asking me along today and for giving me that first job in Belgrade um, uh, back in the day. Um, uh, it's great what we're going to talk about today. It's really important. Um, it's close to Penny's heart, my heart, and also the four panellists' hearts as well. Um, and um, why don't I introduce them one by one and then ask them a very quick question because I'm intrigued as to what COVID's doing to their work environment at the moment and the newsroom. Um, so perhaps we start with um, Anna Mallett, who's the CEO at ITN. She oversees one of the world, uh, one of the largest independent television production companies in the UK. Uh, they, of course, make the award-winning live network news programming for ITV, Channel 4, Channel 5. Um, and before ITN, Anna was Chief Operating Officer and Managing Director of Production at BBC Studios. So she's got a vast wealth of experience across the media um, world. Just quickly, Anna, um, looking around you at the moment, COVID times, is there anybody in the office? Um, well, it's great to be here today. Um, so thank you for inviting me. It is really, it is quite strange where I'm sitting at the moment. I'm up on the fifth floor of our building. I'm looking around. I can't actually see uh, many others. Uh, but our newsrooms actually are still busy. Uh, people are coming in, I think around 30 to 40 percent of their normal capacity. And, you know, we're still delivering news programmes every day. So there's still that buzz in the newsrooms. Um, you'll find them a bit different if you walked into them. You'll find there are one-way systems and desks blocked off and plastic and uh, shields between different um, 
different uh, work areas. There'll be stipulations on the meeting room. So it is, it is a different way of operating. But, you know, I've been so impressed by the resilience of everyone. And, you know, this is a massive story. And, you know, obviously for our newsrooms, that's incredibly exciting as well. Great. Uh, well, we look forward to hearing your thoughts on the future of journalism as we go on. Um, Lorna Hughes, let's come to you next. Um, so Lorna is the editor of the Sunday Mail uh, for the Daily Record Scotland. Um, she's the first female editor of a national newspaper in Scotland for over 20 years, the first in the 106 year history of the Sunday Mail itself. Um, like others here, she's also uh, been an award winning boots on the ground journalists, so covering Dunblane, the death of Princess Diana, 9-11, and, and many other huge stories. And she's now leading a dedicated news features and sports team working across both print and global. So really straddling the two worlds, the old and the new. Um, Lorna, a quick one. Um, I mean, what sort of percentage of staff do you actually have working in the newsroom at the moment? Certainly, absolutely none. We are all working from our kitchen tables or offices or garden sheds and we are managing to produce uh, newspapers, uh, daily and Sunday newspapers as well as um, our huge uh, Scotland wide website. So it is very different at the moment and it's taken a lot of getting used to um, but we are doing it and um, we are still managing to break great stories um, keep everybody informed and actually uh, carry on as if we were all in the office. Um, the communication's a wee bit slower, um, but we are, we are doing it and we're managing, so we are all very proud of that and certainly very proud of the staff who are managing to do that. Um, some of whom are you know very young and who haven't been in you know newsrooms that long others who are uh, like myself a good bit older and um, are used to very very busy loud uh, newsrooms um, and things have got a bit quieter but um, it's still it, it, we are still doing our jobs yeah Brilliant. Amazing. And maybe there's some sort of peeks into the future of journalism and the future of the newsroom in, in what you've just said. Um, let me introduce the, the, the last two panellists. Um, so Polly Curtis has just started at PA Media, which is the UK's news agency. She's just started as managing director. So huge congratulations to her. Before that, she was at the Slow News Startup Tortoise. Before that, she was at the Huff Post UK as editor in chief. Before that, she was digital editor at The Guardian. Um, she's been a reporter, a news editor, been there, done it. So Polly, really looking forward to your thoughts on, on the topic today. And finally, Mira Selva, who's the director of the Journalism Fellowship Programme at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. Um, and uh, Mira is also a steering, uh, member of the steering committee for the Institute. Uh, she too is an accomplished senior journalist with experience in Europe, in Asia and Africa. Um, and, in, and joined the Reuters Institute from Handels Black Global, where she'd been working out of Singapore and helped to launch the daily digital business paper in Berlin in 2014. So welcome to both you, Mira, and to Polly. Um, I mean, maybe let's start with Polly on what's, what gives you hope about the future of journalism at the moment and what do you think is the biggest challenge? Um... 
I think what gives me real hope is that we're much more honest about our problems now than we were a few years ago. I think there was a lot of denial of the scale and pace of change that was needed across the industry um, five, ten years ago. I think we're all very clear-sighted about the big existential structural threats to the industry, but also where our solutions lie. Um, Five, ten years ago, you saw brands madly chasing digital traffic wherever it was. And I think that was not the best thing for journalism. Now we're in a moment where everybody is looking to read a revenue that's making people much more focused on their core value um, as journalists. And I think that is actually producing some better journalism. And through all the hardship of COVID, and it is very real, the impact on our, us as businesses, it's actually produced some of our finest moments journalistically, I think. And you saw that in a lot of the traffic across the industry that was coming for us um, to tell them as trusted sources of news. So the other kind of solution is to really um, focused on the trusted element of what we do and certainly a PA where we are all about providing really straightforward trusted reporting across the industry I think there's more we can do as an industry together to win audiences back um, through this moment as well. Um, perhaps Mira because uh, this week actually you've just started the latest um, year of your yeah. or the phase of your journalism fellowship program which brings together I think if I'm right to put it this way you know some of the the real future thinkers in journalism and where they think it can go and should go I mean presumably I mean th that must be really exciting gives you a real buzz about the future of the industry it is incredible and what's been amazing is the programs we started running in September and our first thought is will anybody come um, because it involves quarantine, it involves face masks, it involves a huge amount of uncertainty and what we realised is that journalists um, really do come because they need to talk, they need to talk to each other, they need to share what's going on and everything is getting so atomised, the working structure of the day and life is getting so atomized that a kind of fellowship or a kind of sense of community feels really important. So we're very, very glad we can provide that. Um, and I think what, what they come with this year, because I've been running this program for a few years, and this year there's a sense of, gosh, I, if I ever wondered if journalism matters, I don't wonder anymore. I'm absolutely sure that this is a vital job. It's a vocation and I'm glad I went into it. And I think a lot of people who might've had doubts about the, the economic forecasting, you know, the mis worries around misinformation, technological upheaval are just saying, okay, they're all things we can deal with. What's really obvious right now is like Polly said, journalism absolutely matters. You can't have a national emergency, a pandemic responses to it without journalism. So that's been quite reassuring to see as well. And, and Lorna, I mean, nodding there, of course, you would agree that journalism matters, but has it, has it started to matter more for your readers in the last few months? Absolutely. Um, I think it's exactly what Mira said. It's, it's about that clarity and getting information to people, um, whether that is print or online. Um, I also think that it matters more now than ever because we need to challenge and we need to ask questions of our leaders and the decisions that they're actually making. Um, and I think we are, we are really in that position, particularly 
you know, I think I think the same can be true in in England as well as Scotland and Wales. That um, there there isn't a sense of an, a, a very very strong opposition to um, our current um, first minister and prime minister. So journalists have a duty. It's our job to ask questions, to be dogged, to be determined and to make sure that we get you know answers and we are um keeping them in check that's that's what we're we're here for and i think if you're working in journalism right now that should be very clear to you that that is your job and that's what we must do matthew i'm not just kind of nip in to say that i, I t totally agree with what lorna and mir is saying this is like a real moment of reckoning for journalism to build rebuild some of that trust but i don't think we should underestimate how tough it is um economically um in advertising environments subscription environments you know all the sources of revenue um, nearly all of them are very challenged at the moment. And so there's something incredibly bittersweet about a moment that is so proving our worth um, as journalists, but also undermining the business model. Um, and I think um, certainly in terms of the near future of journalism, I think you will see some kind of dramatic shifts in the industry over the next year as a result of that. I think that's um, right, Polly. And, you know, from a perspective of ITN, I agree with what everyone has said, you know, the importance of trusted impartial news during a time of national crisis, it comes to its own. And, you know, ITV News has seen, you know, its highest share, 13% share in April since records began. You know, we've seen also younger audiences coming to broadcast news. So Channel 4 News has had massive increases in reach in 16 to 34 year olds. And that's because people really want to know the truth and I think that there is a recognition that some uh, a lot of information that's available is inaccurate and so knowing there's somewhere you can go and you, you trust is vital and I suppose for, for ITN and the broadcast news the future of public service broadcasting is at the heart of that because clearly there are funding pressures on public service broadcasters in terms of advertising revenue and you know the sort of compact with public service broadcasters the prominence they've had on you know, traditional linear services, that starts to break down that kind of benefit and yet they're funding news. So I think the future of public service broadcasting is absolutely essential to the future of, you know, balanced, impartial, trustworthy broadcast news. And how do you get that funding model right? Can I, can I ask a question? Sorry, Matthew, I'm interrupting on this one, but um, can I just ask a question to the three of you on this? Because I find it really fascinating. You kind of say it is absolutely, you know, don't, we don't know what the economic future is going to be for news. And do you feel there's any more understanding amongst your readers, your viewers, your clients about the need to pay for news? Because I think people accept that it's important, but we haven't come to a consensus of who should ultimately be paying. Is it the taxpayer? Is it the... Is it a subscriber? Is it a philanthropic model? You know, do you get the sense that that debate has been going on for a few years, but do you get the feeling that's changed at all in the last few months? I think it has within certain sets of the audience. So, and I think that is that, that there are risks in that as well. So if you have people who are really massively engaged in news to the extent that they understand the difficulty that the industry is offered, is under and are willing to support the industry. They are the source of all the reader revenue that a lot of the news brands are turning towards. They become very 
overserved and actually what happens to all the people who can't pay for news who wouldn't consider paying for news we're really you know lucky to have um, public service broadcasting but making sure the diversity is there um, to serve them and in terms of like the future of news one of the the big things that's going to happen in the next year is the entry of GB News to the um, market, which is um, uh, promising to kind of disrupt the established um, TV news um, and offer a different kind of point of view. I'm really interested to see how some of those developments kind of roll out and to see whether that creates more diversity and thought in news as well. Um, I mean, I'd say on, on GB News, I think, um, you know, from an ITM perspective, we provide news for three different, you know, three very different services. And so in general, we welcome newcomers to the market. And, you know, in the UK, there's been a great tradition of plurality and having those different services that complement each other. And of course, on the broadcast side, we've got a strong regulatory set up, which, um, you know, is there to ensure that we do um, provide impartial, trustworthy news. And if there's ever an issue, there is a, a means and a mechanism to challenge that, which has mm. worked pretty well. So I think it is really interesting to see um, potential new players emerging. I, I couldn't agree more with that. And particularly, you know, I, I come from a kind of Guardian background, but I, I think the, the, one of the big problems that's behind the loss of trust in the media is, is the lack of diversity in the media. So I think that that kind of challenge to the market could actually be really promising within the confines of what... Um, Ofcom, um, of, Ofcom set out. I think it, I think it's good to have diversity of thought in the media and and could connect with different audiences in in different ways. I mean, I do I do wonder about younger digital audiences who are the future and how how that that where where the disruption is going to play out there more. I was reading today about um, uh, the fact that YouTube is about to overtake the BBC as the predominant news source. Um, at, uh, media source and and the uh, on average internet users are on YouTube for 46 minutes a day which I certainly am not on YouTube for 46 minutes a day which makes me feel very out, out of touch with where the audiences are at the moment. Yeah. Lorna how does it look um, from the Scottish perspective on that question about a diverse British media environment that has a plurality of views which are being spoken about and aired. Um, obviously, most of the media in this country, the national media, is based in London. Does, does it feel like the London media is, is becoming more diverse in the, in the range of views and the way it covers stories? Sorry. Um, Yes, I, I think it is. I think what's interesting for for a journalist working in Scotland or wanting to work in Scotland is that in Scotland, um, certainly in print and in broadcasting, it's always been quite diverse. It's been one of it's always been one of the most challenging print um, areas. Anyway, we've always um, I mean going back to the sixties and seventies. Um, we had huge amounts of print journalism um, in Scotland. We are obviously in um, a slightly different position. We have, you know, an ongoing independence debate that 
you dominate almost everything and including, you know, Corona as well. Um, so it, it is, we, cert we certainly feel that we are, we need, in Scotland, we need to be more diverse, but certainly, you know, what, what we're doing at the moment and certainly what, what we're doing at REACH, um, which owns both the Daily Record and the Sunday Mail and obviously um, all our live and our digital sites. You know, it is really, we are appealing to both a young audience uh, online. We're also appealing to more traditional uh, print readers who have, you know, bought perhaps for decades our print titles. And we also have a very strong market in sport as well. And uh, what we don't have in Scotland is uh, that kind of celebrity or turning people into celebrity. We, we have more of a, a crime thing going on that that, that is what, what gets our readers. So, you know, it's politics, it's crime, and it, it does cross, you know, um, all age groups. So it's interesting. Um, just just while we're sort of 20 minutes into this, because I know some people um, uh, um, also like to um, use the Aspen podcast as a way of following this through if they can't stay for the entire conversation. So it, it's just a reminder that if you do have to leave us at some point, um, don't forget that the webinar is going to be released. It'll be next month on the Aspen UK podcast. And um, you can find that on the Aspen UK website and actually on any podcast streaming platform as well. So search for Aspen UK. Um, do I mean go on on that question of diversity and catering to different audiences? This country is so much more diverse. The world is so much more diverse than it used to be. There are a plurality of views that you hear day in day out on social media, and 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 I just I, I find it hard to get my head around how a news organisation. How do you decide who you're catering for? Because you can't possibly cater for everybody anymore, can you? Well, I think the idea that think societies are more diverse than they used to be, I'm not completely sure that's true. I think there's I think there's always been communities that have just not been served by the news um, that have always been there. Um, and I think they've not been served by the news and the people from those communities used to make it into journalism. This is kind of talking about kind of regional, you know, working class, non-professional roots of journalism, and, and then stopped being able to make it into journalism when it became a kind of university professionalized London centric um, business. And so part of the diversity is going back to that. Part of it is um, the fact that certain voices were just not heard. I mean, literally, if you look at the BBC and received pronunciation versus regional accent. So um, I think it's, um, I think if you look at like who you're catering to, I think you, that's almost like, firstly, there's a business question, you know, who is your market? And that's if you're, if you're Tortoise or the Financial Times or the Guardian, you say, you know, who are our readers, who are our caterers? But then if you're a public sector broadcaster, it seems to be that you've got to be kind of at least representative or representational in terms of the population. So 50% women, you know, roughly the right number, same number of minorities as you have in the population. Mary, I think, sorry. So on that point of representation, I, I agree. I think what I would say, though, and I know this is quite a familiar theme, but 
certainly uh, for us at ITN, it's not just about overall representation, it's about representation in, in the decision-making roles. So, you know, there's a huge amount of privilege that goes with deciding which stories to talk about, you know, where they go, how they're told, and therefore it's really important that we um, have diverse voices at every level of the organisation. And, um, you know, that's an absolute priority at ITN. We've focused our diversity and inclusion strategy on how we progress people through the organization so that you ensure you do have all those different perspectives and voices that just creates a much more dynamic creative environment and so um, I think you're right at the minimum certainly for us we need to try to re represent fairly um, the UK and that means um, ensuring representation at every level. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think on that point, I don't know anyone working or leasing newsrooms anywhere in the country who's not thinking if we're not closer to our audience, more representative, we, we can't serve our audiences. But when, when you look at, for example, what YouTube had done, um, their UK chief executive talking about um, this landmark moment this week was talk, saying that basically people can find the stories on YouTube that are about their specific race, gender, regional diversity, they're, they're kind of drilling down. So as much as we do to diversify our newsrooms and, and that's got to be central to winning back trust, it, it's, not, it's not a fair fight in a way if, if the challenger is social media because they're so um, they're creating su such niche pockets for audiences and that cater very directly. So it's, it, it's, it's a different kind of battleground. I think the should aim to reach everybody. Does everybody want to see and read news? Yeah, I think. What were you going to? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I yes, I do. I think they consume it in different ways, and they'll look at different um, sites or they'll look at different um, whether it's media. But yeah, yes, I do, and I think people who think that they don't or aren't interested in consuming news you'll find that they are they just don't necessarily realize it sometimes um, in the way that they're actually consuming it the way that they're actually getting it but yes I do I agree with Lorna and you know um, one of the challenges is to ensure that news can be enjoyed on any platform so certainly ITV news has brought out the rundown which is targeted at 13 to 17 year olds and it's um, the biggest news program on social media and you know if I look at Channel 4 News they've had 1 billion minutes viewed uh, on YouTube and half of the audience was under 35 so I, I think that the challenge uh, for all of us is to find a way to reach audiences on different platforms in a sustainable way and you know it's not about either or. Another interesting uh, thing we've seen is um, certainly during COVID, we've uh, had younger audiences, you know, come to our services perhaps on social media, but then come to the linear service afterwards because they've, you know, enjoyed the, the stories and the angles they've seen and they've come back to the linear. So I don't think it's either or, but I do think we absolutely have to think about lots of different audiences and the platforms that they feel resonate for them. And that's so much harder because you have to have eight publishing strategies for different platforms rather than one way of telling a story. It's it's a real that's it's such a challenge for us. I think it's also this kind of you have to do this dual thing where you're kind of producing an incredibly tailored packet for an individual while also sticking to an idea of news as a shared experience and somehow a community building experience. 
Um, we're going to get to some questions from, um, and there's loads coming in, which is fantastic. Thanks very much. Keep keep um, sending questions in. Um, we'll get to those in a moment. But I, I just wanted to touch on something that um, Anna's mentioned in sort of pre-chats to this. And it's something I've noticed in journalism in the last few years, that um, there's an incredibly talented group of 25 to 35-year-old journalists, and they are driven, and they're quite activist in their nature as well. They believe that their way of thinking is absolutely right um, and that they should be using journalism as a way of um, uh, as a way of presenting what they believe to be true in the world. And, and I wonder how much of a challenge that is to newsrooms. There's been some articles in the New York Times about the challenges within that paper on, on this level, the sort of different be difference between the generations, uh, the people of my age who our age who've been around for 20 years or so and then those just coming into journalism who perhaps view it in a slightly different way as to what why they're in it and what they're in it for I mean that that strikes me as quite a big challenge I think from from my perspective um, we absolutely want to encourage people with passion and energy to come into the industry um, but we always have to remain credible and objective in our journalism. And my mantra is always our journalism has to do the talking. So, you know, it has to be, um, you know, very much based on the facts with due impartiality at its heart. I'm not sure they're necessarily always intention. I think you can be highly passionate and energetic, but still, you know, ensure that you're, you're, you're giving a balanced perspective. But it is something that I think we've got to continually look at. Yeah, I think... I, I completely agree, Anna. Um, I see a lot of what Matthew has described, and you know, you you have to you have to sometimes say, you you have to be balanced. You have to be the person that's sitting back, and uh, you know, and listening to all sides and report it. Um, we have to do that. Um, that's how I started. You don't want to curb the enthusiasm. You know, if they feel um, particularly enthusiastic about something, then absolutely. But I think that that's when, you know, if you harness that the right way, then you're going to get some great journalists, there's no doubt. Um, but I do, I, I do think there is sometimes that sense of, yeah, running and being campaigning and having, you know, an issue immediately. And I think that you you, you have to look at a story and tell it um, and tell it in a very unbalanced way and let people make up their own mind, whether that's a viewer, whether that's a reader, um, you know, whether that's somebody sitting on their phone. Um, I think that is our, again, that's our job. And um, it's interesting that so many journalists across all types of media now um, that they are very um, opinionated because obviously we came from an era where you know it was you had to find out the facts and you had to report them as such um, it's, but, it's interesting. but can anyone imagine a future in a world in which we're all giving our opinions on social media where everybody now clearly has an opinion there's nothing that the, the, the notion of ob objectivity in a way has been dismissed. I wonder, I mean, Mira, is there a future of journalism where actually you could imagine journalists saying, yeah, I voted for Brexit, and yet that's not affecting the way I cover the politics? I think we're already there with Brexit, aren't we? I think we're fairly clear how people, certain journalists voted, or we assume we know. Um, 
I think um, I think objectivity and impartiality are, you know, again, they're they're concepts that that can, they're open for discussion. Has there been this golden era of impartiality and objectivity? And I don't think there has been. Um, but I do think there is a kind of a kind of a generation. You're right that it's partly it's generational. There's a generational kind of activist journalists. Now, again, you've always had activist journalism. Mean, you've had kind of George Monbiot and um, Glenn Greenwald. You know, you've got older journalists who also lay their politics out on the line. But um, the younger generation, I think it's it's to do with identity rather than opinion. I'd say it's to do with they. And this is again relates to diversity to some extent. If we're having these serious conversations about what diversity in the newsroom means, that it's about getting the people in, but also allowing their perspectives and their views to cut, you know, to change the organization and change the way news is perspective presented. So I think it's not as straightforward as saying there's opinion and fact, though I do agree that you know the idea that reporting the facts is absolutely fundamental to journalism. But yeah, yeah. I mean I I completely yeah. agree because as as you know, women, um, you yeah. know, in being a reporter, you know, you had to hold your hand up sometimes when, you know, a predominantly male newsroom for me was going down one route in terms of a story or using language that, and, you know, you do, you, you as you get older and you get more experience, you go, right, I'm going to say that that is wrong. Yeah. So I've done that. You're absolutely right. We just now need to do that and you know with more diversity you, you know we need that um absolutely but i would still say that on you know the, the 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 breaking stories on the big stories i think you should have to you know be seen to be you know giving the facts being being balanced and letting the reader yeah. you know i think sometimes we don't give the reader or the viewer the intelligence they they will they will see the, you know, they will be able to make up their own mind. I totally agree with you. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the other thing is that I think US organisations got themselves into huge trouble over this because the New York Times, Washington Post, they have such separation of it, opinion editorial. So the editor in chief will not have any say over the opinion pages. And they assume that the readers understand that and they assume that everybody in their ecosystem understands this distinction. And yet when people see an opinion op-ed going out under the New York Times brand with a certain headline, they don't sit down and say, well, that's an op-ed leader and that's nothing to do with news. They get upset. And the people in the New York Times newsroom also get upset that um, the news is being, you know, that people are thinking that this is their newsroom view. So I think a lot of this is also to do with how on social media, again, it's not very clear um, whether you're reading a piece of opinion or a piece of fact from a from a brand that you recognize. And that's kind of feeding really, into it. Sorry, I think there's a really curious kind of tension that I don't really understand because I really recognize the um, the drivers of younger journalists who, who who want to do this more campaigning journalism. But but it's also a cause of a lot of the mistrust um, in the news that um, people think that the news has agendas and is pursuing things and not giving them the whole truth. One thing I'd definitely say when you use the New York Times example and the whole kind of controversy over what's opinion and what's what's reporting, um, I think there is there has been a sub, kind of a surprising lack of innovation in how we tell stories digitally considering we're this far into a digital revolution in, in journalism. And um, although we have kind of diversified in a lot of ways, you never thought The Guardian would do video, you didn't think ITM would do words, you know, it's, it's kind of th those kind of innovations. But we haven't really 
innovated um, away from comment features, current affairs, news kind of structures. Um, and I think um, that Lorna's point about um, uh, giving the reader lots of credit, you know, when I think about sitting on a news desk and editing stories all day, what you're doing when you're editing a 500 word story for digital is trying to iron out things will be confusing to the reader you're trying to kind of make it neat and reach conclusions and and I think some of the problem lies in that because the world is more complicated than the simple structure of a news story um, and I don't know how you get over that but I still think we haven't really scratched the service surface on innovation in news news storytelling can I um, move us on to a few of the questions um, uh, and the first one is, is a very practical one about the way in which COVID has changed the nature of interviewing politicians. Um, uh, there's um, uh, someone who's not given their name but they're asking they understand the health reasons for having politicians in one room and a journalist on a screen asking a question during a news briefing um, but um, doesn't that are there fears that that lets the politicians off the hook, that, that, that it's just harder for the, the journalist to challenge the politician? Yes, it really is. <laughs> um, I think it's been the source of frustration both in London and in Scotland as well, um, that follow-up questions aren't allowed, you're not allowed to challenge, you're not able to, rather. Um, they can hit a mute button on you. Of course, that's, that has been very difficult. Um, I wish that uh, whether it's print or whether it's um, television, journalists would keep their questions short and to the point and, you know, you have to get an answer um, because I think that elicits... Um, better responses. I think we're letting them off the hook when we're asking two, three questions within, you know, one your set time. So yeah, it has been very challenging. There's no doubt about that. And there's another question related to COVID, um, almost from the opposite perspective. Um, uh, again, someone who hasn't given their name says that, um, so their parents are in their 70s, they've just given up their newspaper, and it feels to the person writing this question that at this time of COVID, their interests, their horizons are being narrowed. Yeah. Um, you know, are, are, are newspapers, are, are news organisations losing older consumers at the moment? Are they, are they finding that more people are tuning out of the news? I think you saw, and I don't know, Miris, is some of the um, work at Reuters show that yeah. you saw this incredible appetite for the story at the beginning of lockdown, you certainly saw some um, just exhaustion with the story over the summer. Um, but what what will happen is is you know never have we had a story not in my career where people are so viscerally affected by what's happening in the news, are so personally affected by what's happening in the news. And so I think um, on the COVID story, there are, there are huge peaks where everyone tunes in to work out what's gonna happen to them personally. Um, and then um, certainly over the summer, there was, there was a period of, um, of people just being quite weary about it. Um, so it kind of, I, I think it, it, it kind of, tunes in and out. I it also ties in with, sorry, the, 
the issue of trust you you mentioned our research and you know one thing in our latest report is that one third of people say that they 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 say the media has made the situation worse they made the covid-19 situation worse and 46% say it's had no effect so most people think it's either made it worse or had no effect rather than made things better or provided clarity so i think this is kind of something to do with the breakdown in trust in the media and the utility of the media and again you're absolutely right at the beginning of the pandemic there was kind of sharp uptick in news consumption and then it just fell away because people just stopped getting um getting covid information via news sites i mean i'd say overall our audiences are still up year and year obviously there have been different peaks and i think you know it's been a real challenge for the newsrooms to get the tone right to avoid fatigue with the subject you know when it's you know relentless um trying to get the right balance of stories whether it's the sort of relentless pursuit of the truth around PPE in care homes or trying to find, um, you know, the uplifting stories like um, Colonel Tom. So I think there has been a real drive to try to create that balance. And also, you know, you know, over recent weeks and months, you have seen a more diverse range of stories. But obviously, this is such a huge story that it is going to continue to be um, very much at the forefront. And, you know, I, as you, you said, um, Mira, when the, the big developments happen we do see a surge again mm-hmm. and that that goes for, for print as well definitely um you know as you say as you said there was a kind of huge spike at the beginning then it flattened down but we're actually seeing you you know a leveling now um and we think that we have our our core readership uh, still with us so i'm not sure about older people turning away um I think they may be getting it from from different sources, but I think they're still interested. I think that's the group that are still interested, absolutely. There's a question from Eduardo um, who asks, what does a tabloid digital subscription look like? Is it possible for tabloids to transition into revenue from digital readers? That's that's the question. Mm -hmm. And um, at the moment, nobody is finding it. Um, in any way successful and um, we are finding revenue from our sites in different ways Um, I am not sure that our readers uh, online would necessarily pay a subscription um, for it I think differently in terms of some other um, newspapers and news sites but I think at the moment and that that's how we're evolving it's it's Will we have to go that way? And if we have to go that way, then we, you know, again, we're changing um, ever more. And and you can see it the 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 clickbait, whatever MD says, certainly um, within reaches is, is is not as as it once was a few years ago. Um, but we certainly need to you you need to invest some money um, in in digital and tabloid digital sites to get those subscriptions. I think. So another question is, should journalism be subsidised? Should newspapers and public service broadcasters become charities? So I, I, I was on the Cairn Cross inquiry panel um, a couple of years ago that was looking at the future of um, public interest news. And I argued that in a perfect world, we wouldn't take advertising. We wouldn't ask readers for money. You know, we would uh, be completely kind of... It, 
clear of all kind of financial considerations. We are so far beyond that world that I think there is a, st a case for more state funding. Other countries do it um, quite naturally. Um, I think it needs really careful um, Chinese walls so that to, to lessen the impact of um, of, um, of political interference. And I think um, certainly now it needs to be very, very focused on local because that's where the real problem is in terms of making news pay. And that's where more importantly than anything, the democratic deficit is um, in terms of accountability at a local area. In terms of community at a local area as, as well, um, there's so many amazing um, news organizations working on a local level around the country but the financial pressures they're under um, there needs to be a new source of revenue for those operations because it's democratically absolutely vital which then leads on to this other question which is that because of because of the difficulty for some of the media in getting um, uh, in, in, in funding itself um, is that how much is there a danger that journalism then compromises its values in order to survive with the type of information that it's putting out and the stories it's putting out? So, so my argument is that, that I've, I've done things as an editor I wouldn't have wanted to do ideally in an ideal world, but you can do them well if you are strong as an editor. So for an example, um, how you do branded content. Um, traditionally, branded content across the industry was kind of treated as something, if you just tuck it away in a corner and do it, you, um, um, you can preserve your independence. I actually think to be authentic, um, to be worthy of your brand being part of it, it needs more editorial engagement to drive up the standards of that so that it's good for the brand partner, but also consistent with your standards of journalism. Um, so um, I think actually editors are having to lean more into the kind of commercial areas to ensure their brand is not compromised in any way. And then the other side to that is our readers are, in many cases, as we develop um, subscription models, are our source of revenue. And then once your audience is your source of revenue, you want to serve your audience because they are your audience. And, and actually, you can't not engage with the commercial side because the commercial is your, your model. Um, I mean, sorry, your audience is your model. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, that's why as part of the landscape, it's just so important to have public service uh, broadcasters who absolutely have to be impartial, are regulated, are tasked with doing all they can to, to try and achieve universality. And um, I, I, I feel that as we've discussed, the pandemic has really demonstrated the importance of that. And, you know, I think as I look to the future, one of the challenges is going to be in this new landscape where there's so many sources of news and information. How do audiences know that they are um, looking at something that is trusted and impartial and regulated? And I think that um, issue of prominence is something that I know the PSBs have spoken about, the importance of prominence of trusted journalism on all platforms. You know, how do you distinguish it? How do people find it? How do you market so that you, you know um, that when you're looking at those sources, you'll know you're looking at something regulated. There's an interesting question from Sven on a different topic, um, uh, who suggests that 
young people as young as nine or ten in their early teens are being confronted so heavily confronted with images of violence and and also getting political influence on on platforms like TikTok um, that they might get locked into a certain way of thinking of identity thought as as Sven puts it um, and whether there are fears that that sort of narrows their mind so that they're less interested in balanced news at a later age as they grow up. Um, well, I mean, I've got a 14-year-old and we got an email from school saying, please um, stop them using TikTok altogether for a while because there's a very disturbing video going around of a man who live streamed his suicide and TikTok aren't acting fast enough to take this down and it's hidden. So it can be a video on how to cook pasta and you click on it and it's this live stream. So it was a, it was a note from the school that came via the city council saying, please, you know, please tell your teenagers to just stop using TikTok, which I thought was an extraordinary message. Um, and I think it, it, it kind of it reinforced one point because they're, they're still children and we're still adults. So they're, you know, nine, 10 year olds are not meant to be uncritical, open consumers of all news. You know, we are still, as parents, as teachers, as kind of adults, meant to be gatekeepers What if it, of information they see. So I think um, there is a danger of unbalanced news, but to be honest, I'd argue that most nine, 10 year olds, you know, they need, if, they, if they're going to be exposed to news, it does need to be curated in an age appropriate way for them anyway. And that's same with all content technology, you know, social media as well. A question from Cathy. What, um, uh, what ideas are, are you developing in, in your own organisations about changing the makeup of the future of future newsrooms? So uh, it's a question about diversity. So, uh, PA Media, we've got a, um, a big diversity initiative involving um, uh, an ongoing apprenticeship program that works with um, school leavers and um, with uh, university leavers as well to um, to bring more uh, diversity into the newsroom. Um, we're a long way off where we want to be, but I'm really proud of the program that we're getting in place and that we're gonna see some really big changes over the next year. I mean, yeah, like, sorry, is that Lorna? No. <laughs> like, like Polly, we, we are doing exactly the same as well. Um, there's more diversity, certainly, in our news organisations down south than there is in Scotland, and that's challenging. Um, so, you know, that that's definitely something that that we are getting involved with and trying to change, um, like everywhere else. Yeah, and, I, mean, and, and, I mean, geographical diversity, um, class diversity. I think it's yeah, all elements of uh, diversity. I think. Um, you know, the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement over the summer was a very profound moment and, you know, people were deeply, deeply affected and upset. And I think, you know, there was a, a real drive, certainly at ITN, for, you know, less talk and more headlines and deadlines and actions. And um, over the summer, we developed this um, 21 part action plan so pretty comprehensive from recruitment through progression, through transparency, how editorial decisions are made. Um, accountability and we're running through that action plan but to your point it's it's yes it is about um, gender it is about um, black Asian and ethnic minority um, it's it's but it's also about regions it's about socioeconomic background and 
Now, this isn't a sort of box ticking exercise. This comes to our earlier discussion. If you want to be a creative, vibrant organization able to appeal to a wide range of audiences, young, old, different platforms, you need that diversity. It's absolutely, and you know, I think if anything, during the last few months, some people might have thought, oh, is that, you know, on the back burner because everyone's dealing with COVID. No, it's absolutely central. Polly, you um, you sort of you talked about the need to sort of shift away from um, possibly that the the sort of old funnel, you know, opinion, news, um, et cetera, et cetera, and, and and really imagine a new way of doing journalism. Um, uh, there's a question that sort of links to that slightly differently, though. Um, is there a positive angle to discussing the future of journalism? What kind of new technologies, for instance, are helping journalism? Mm. Um. So I think that I mean, definitely I think there's a positive angle um, to it. I think what we're proving through this period, as we've discussed, is the need for basic kind of facts and um, um, and for proper reporting um, through journalism. Um, but I think um, in terms of what that might look like, I think we're, we're just scratching the surface. I, I could see... You, we, we're so it's so hard to break out of the confines of thinking about opinion and features and um, or current affairs and news. It's very difficult to to unlearn everything you you know and kind of invent new ways. And actually, my experience at Tortoise was really really interesting because what Tortoise is trying to do is um, is to stop competing in a timely way and do slow news. So take a subject that we know or that the organization knows the readers are into and really follow it through but open up the processes as well and i think lots of the industry is thinking about that how do we open up the processes of news and bring new voices in and in broadcasting i've seen some brilliant ways through the pandemic as well how um people's voice ordinary people's voices are being brought in via zoom calls into live programming and and it feels that's starting to feel more dynamic and diverse in 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 the kind of conversations more nuanced um it's going to be you know really interesting to see what gb news does that on that as well in terms of kind of personality-led programming um i don't i don't think we've really got into what the new format should be um but we also are at risk of losing new audiences when you see what how people are consuming information on TikTok. And remember, on all these social media platforms, we are not um, competing with each other anymore. We're competing with lots of different sources of information. And the categories of news are being eroded next to all the other information that's out there competing for people's eyeballs. So I think it's definitely a kind of, um, we need to create a new language for landing with, with our audiences. Um, Mira, with all that competition going on, um, and and then I've got one more question I want to ask from the from the group that's come in because it's from a journalism student and it's an important one. But um, just before we get to that, Mira, um, um, I mean, with all that competition coming in um, and and so many different sources of information, what is journalism for? Ah, that's a very good question. Um, to inform, probably it's to get facts out there, um, to create. 
basically there's two ideas is it to inform to entertain is it to good create is it to create good citizens informed citizens who can then usefully participate in the political process and certainly if you're looking at the uk you this i think what journalism's for de de depends on which country you're in and which perspective you take but if you're looking in the uk i think we'd argue it's to create an informed citizenry that can then take part in democratic elections with a full array of accurate facts in front of them and I suppose as a follow-up then, how do you counter the narrative that we see in all of the, the what Polly was describing in terms of the competition that's out there in, term, in grabbing our attention in terms of the information that's put out there? Well, yes. I mean, the, the amount of time people spend online is shocking and the amount of time they spend online that's dedicated to news is minuscule and it's less than, you know, it, it's you know, we're talking about one to three percent if you're lucky. Um, and even when they're on news sites, the amount of time they spend consuming news on those news sites as opposed to, you know, celebrity things, we know what we consider hard news is also tiny. So it, it is a problem. It's kind of a problem of getting people's attention. Um, I think part of the issue, solution lies in what Polly um, referred to as like, you know, talk about who are we talking to and how, what are we saying to them? We've got to convince them, the audiences, that this news is things that they need, that it's speaking to them, for them, and that their lives will be better having consumed this piece of news. Not necessarily easier, but better. That final question comes from, um, in parentheses, from a nervous journalism student. So here yeah. it is. Would you, and I'm going to, each, each of the four of you, please, would you become a journalist if you had your time all over again? I so would. You would. Why? Uh, it's been a terrific life. And I, you know, I, I came into it at a different stage when there was more money and more opportunities. But also, you know, a lot of I've worked in a lot of newsrooms, you know, shrinking and, you know, laying off people. So it's not been glory, but it's it's a terrific um, life because it enables you to be part of society, absolutely part of whatever conversation is going on. You're part of whatever change is kind of happening right now. And that's both for good and ill. So all the disruptions that we see in society, you're right in the middle of it. And that's always an ex exciting position to be in. Lorna? Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't do, I wouldn't have done anything else. I still think it's a wonderful career for anybody to go into, albeit different. Um, I have been able to do everything from from Dumbleen, from Princess Diana, to terrorist attacks, to um, bringing in um, groundbreaking, change-making stories. You know, you can set your own agenda as well. Um, my background's been in mainly Sunday newspapers, which is, that's what, what Sunday newspaper journalists do. Um, but, you know, as, as Mina says, you, you, ha you can help influence change and you you can actually um be part of everything that's going on and at the moment it is really exciting it is fascinating it's ever-changing we have difficulties in the commercial side absolutely but um it's still a wonderful career whether it's whether it's print whether it's television whether it's online digital i, I still think that um there are amazing opportunities, absolutely, if you want them. Anna, is it a good time to be a journalism student? I mean, the industry is <laughs> rationalising at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, I should say up front that I, I don't have a journalistic background in quite the same way as the other panellists today, but I do have a background in storytelling and um, public service. And I have to say the last 
six months, I, I feel I felt so proud to be part of ITN with all the passion and dedication and creativity across the newsrooms. And, you know, I just think it's so, so important. So if I had my time again, I, I feel it, it, it's a wonderful uh, way to, to have your, live your life and build your career. And I, I've been so, so proud to be associated with all the talent here. Polly, are there going to be jobs for the journalism students of today? I would say if you want to do one job for the rest of your life and for it never to change, don't be a journalist because it's going to change and change and change. It certainly has through my whole career. And that is what is what's been so exciting about it as well. And I think I think we are going to find more solutions in the coming years. I think we've we've lost a lot of the things that were holding us back and the the pace of innovation in journalism is is getting more and more exciting um so i think it's a brilliant time to come in and i wouldn't have done anything else differently for all the reasons that everyone else has said and also because i don't know how to do anything else Well, thank you all very much indeed. It's six o'clock and Penny's rejoined us visually. So um, thank you. That was brilliant. I, I have. I, well, I've, I've absolutely been on tenterhooks throughout. It was a really bouncy hour and a really lovely way to finish. I'm very glad that you all think you made the right career choice. But I also wasn't at all surprised to hear you say that this really is a moment of reckoning for journalism. And I, I think I heard more challenges from you all than I think I'd recognised before the hour. So thank you so much. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.